1: Visit bankofamerica.com/slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
0: Hello and welcome to this 500th episode of The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Every generation gets a different kind of adolescence, rooted in the times. But our social policy editor finds real change these days in girlhood in particular. Girls are more informed, more empowered, and more optimistic about changing the world. And most people who get bitten by deadly snakes don't have a good idea which species did the biting. That makes the choice of anti-venom harder, or even more deadly. We look into an effort to find a more general-purpose antidote. First up, though. Following last week's deadly siege of the Capitol building in Washington, social media companies have removed President Donald Trump's accounts. Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, defended the move, saying the risk to democracy was too big.
2: Our ban's indefinite. We've said at least through the transition, but we have no plans to lift it.
0: Twitter first announced a temporary ban, but in the end decided to shut Mr. Trump's personal account entirely.
2: In a statement, Twitter said after close review of recent tweets from the real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, we have permanently suspended the account.
0: Their ostensible rationale was to clamp down on incitement to violence. Then, other tech giants made moves to quiet right-leaning corners of the internet. As the Trump camp fled to a Twitter-like app called Parler, Apple and Google banned it from their platforms. Amazon's huge web services division then said it wouldn't host Parler's traffic. And overnight, Twitter went further still, purging more than 70,000 accounts affiliated with the nutty but resilient conspiracy theory known as QAnon. All this raises questions not only about who the rightful arbiters of free speech are, but also about the business models of many social media firms.
1: What we're seeing in the U.S. is a culmination of two big problematic trends.
0: Patrick Fowles is our business affairs editor.
1: One is obviously the rise and now fall of Donald Trump and and the kind of death throes of his administration. The other big trend is the incredible power and role of the social media firms in terms of the public and political discourse in america and the two have come together in a kind of incredible and disturbing crescendo and the social media firms have made decisions that have enormous importance not just for free speech in the us but also that set a very important precedent that will have implications right across the world
0: And what's been the immediate reaction to these unilateral actions by social media firms, Google, Apple?
1: You don't have to think very deeply about this to find it concerning that a few tech executives get to shut down the president of the U.S. and a large number of other people. Republicans, I think, in their view, a sort of left-leaning Silicon Valley is now trying to set the rules of speech. And outside of the U.S., we've already seen people point out The sort of bizarre inconsistencies raised by this. So you have, you know, autocrats around the world who are happily using Twitter, but the president of the US cannot. And obviously, one thing to add is that the cynics would argue that what's also going on is those social media firms are anticipating a democratic presidency and Congress and are therefore keen to act cooperatively with that agenda too. So it's a very messy situation indeed.
0: But in light of what happened at the Capitol, it's hard to imagine what more it might have taken. I mean, do you, do you think Twitter's and Facebook's decision at this stage was the right one?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of problems with it, and this is just viewed from a U.S. context. You know, the first is the rationale given is incitement to violence, which legally speaking is defined very narrowly and tightly in the U.S. It's not clear that a lot of the stuff being taken down is indeed... And incitement to violence, and and therefore the kind of test being used is is pretty fluid. We have the example of Parler, which is this libertarian slash right leaning messaging system and platform that has been taken off the app stores of Google and Apple, and also AWS, the web hosting firm, is refusing to provide for it, which means it's basically kind of been shut down completely. I think the second problem is who is making the decisions, and it is ultimately several people running these very big tech companies and the idea that they personally get to decide the public sphere in the US is very dangerous, particularly when what ultimately may happen is large numbers of fringe actors in in the US political system get excluded from it completely, which is often a recipe for disaster.
0: But this is just the, the pointy end of a discussion that's been going on for, for years about regulation of content online and the, the power to do so being in, in few hands. What, what is the right answer? How, how to handle this question? Because it's not going away.
1: You're absolutely right about that. The long-term answer, on paper at least, is probably more competition so that it is not the case that one or two companies and their powerful bosses get to decide everything. That's not an easy thing to do, so in the meantime, what do you need one I think is a clearer, consistently applied definition of what incitement to violence is, and the second thing is I think decisions around that, uh, the transparency about those decisions, the sense that there is a method of redress cannot lie in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and a couple of other people in Silicon Valley. And our proposal at The Economist is to create a media regulator in the US or a media body. Now, that isn't controlled by the private companies and nor is it being directed by the government. That is there to try and set a sort of common policy that is transparent and applied consistently across the social media space. Now, outside of the U.S., it's a different question because there are different laws, but that's our answer for the U.S.
0: But in a sense, that, that is exactly the problem with the Internet. It is inherently international. I mean, what has the international reaction been to, to the decisions now, and, and what do you think the, the sort of the temperature is for this debate outside America?
1: In Germany, Angela Merkel made a very important intervention on this question through her spokesman. In Aspekt sieht uh, die Bundeskanzlerin. According to him, she thinks it's a problematic breach of the fundamental right to free speech. And we've seen comments from other people. I mean, Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident, has criticized the decision. And I think we'll see a wave of reaction around the world. What is the answer to that problem? Well, our sense is that democracies, liberal societies around the world have different laws. The U.S. is At the most open end of the spectrum, Germany, for example, has rules on hate speech and the Holocaust and so on. Our sense is that the tech companies, when they're dealing in in liberal democracies, should obviously adhere to whatever um, speech code their governments have adopted. The more problematic uh, situation is when the tech companies are operating in autocracies that don't respect the rule of law. Now, should Facebook do what the government of Belarus tells it? Probably not. In that situation, I think that probably comes back to that media regulator that it's there to set some decisions about which countries around the world qualify for being liberal democracies and therefore where their own domestic laws should take precedence, and then also identify autocracies where the U.S. social media firms may be free to kind of ignore national rules. Now, the implications of all of this are mind-boggling, and that's a struggle that's about to begin.
0: But in the meantime, until there is such a regulator in place, Twitter and Facebook and the rest will be driven by market forces, and certainly we saw market forces drive down share prices yesterday for both Facebook and Twitter.
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? These companies, in a sense, have created one of the best business models in the world with enormous revenues and profits and very little investment and created a kind of toxic problem for society in the process. So I think what's happening is, is that people recognise that business model is not really sustainable. And I think investors are realising that you can't make huge profits while polluting the public space of the world's most important democracy forever.
0: Patrick, thank you very
1: much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
0: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
3: We can we can do something, we can change things. But it's
0: also, it's, it's a lot of pressure to change this. are the only generation who's relied on to change things. For a lot of human history, many places considered girls property, if girls were considered at all. Today, that vision of the world seems almost unimaginable. In much of the rich world, parents now treat their sons and daughters equally. In some places, even spending more attention and money on daughters. And so girls today are healthier and more educated, and in many countries, richer than their forebears. The COVID-19 pandemic offers new challenges that a generation of adolescent women seems energized to solve. But it also threatens some of the real global gains young women have made, testing formative friendships at a crucial juncture.
3: Well, girlhood is a really pivotal time in women's life, and it's one that's changing really quite rapidly and that has... Lasting consequences, not just for the girls involved, but also on their societies.
0: Sasha Nelda is The Economist's public policy editor.
3: And it's the most educated, the most informed, the most invested in generation of girls ever.
0: But I mean, couldn't you say many of the same things about today's boys?
3: Girlhood has always been defined in relation to boyhood. So for very long, girls were supposed to be the exact opposite of boys, whereas now girlhood is very much its own thing. And if you speak with not just girls, but also actually boys, girls seem to be allowed a a much broader range of interests and behaviours and identities. So whereas boyhood remains fairly narrowly defined, not just by society, but also by boys themselves, girls have got this new, much broader set of things that they can build on to say what it means to be a girl.
0: And so with that evolving meaning, scope, uh, length even of girlhood, I mean, what, what are the elements of girlhood as now defined?
3: So I spent a lot of time talking to both groups and individual girls across rich countries. And the first thing that sort of stands out is friendships. And that is also quite a striking difference with boyhood. So where boy friendships are typically formed side by side around shared activities like like sports or video games. Girl friendships tend to form face-to-face around emotional self-disclosure, telling each other secrets. But also, this closeness has some downsides. Girls can be very mean to both themselves but also to each other. This is what one of the girls who I spoke to who's based in London told me.
2: Girls girls can be
1: poisonous sometimes Mm. in the way that they're like, oh... Let's drag each other down because that's what we can talk to. But also, we know each other better than, I
2: mean, I assume, than guys do because we talk to each other so much. Mm -hmm.
0: But with changing girlhood must must come also, I guess, changing perceptions of girlhood, relations with girls. I mean, is that changing in terms of how they deal with family, for example?
3: Absolutely. Whereas friendship has got lots of timeless elements to it, the thing that's probably changed most of all, is how daughters are treated by their parents. A study of parental spending in the 70s showed that back then, parents with only boys spent significantly more on their kids than parents with only girls, whereas by 2017, that difference had disappeared altogether. You also see it in parental norms. All sorts of surveys show their views that girls shouldn't go to university or that girls shouldn't be allowed to ask boys out for dates. So those sorts of things really are changing quite markedly and in fact a survey in america showed that the home is now the place where girls are least likely to experience sexism as opposed to say in school or online
0: and as you say they exist in a completely different technological world
3: absolutely the phones in their pocket really are defining feature of all teenagers. There's a common narrative that tech is causing body anxiety and an epidemic of self-harm, etc. in in teen girls. And I would just pause there for a second because it's important here to separate the arrival of Instagram and, and phones in teenagers' lives from some of the real issues that they face. So girls have perhaps always felt judged by their bodies. And this generation doesn't seem to be any different. That seems fairly depressing, but timeless. And they need a bit of context, though. Take suicide. A a really striking and horrible fact is that in America, suicide amongst 10 to 14-year-old girls has tripled over the last 20 years. That is undeniably a, a, a horrible trend but it is still lower than any other group, including teen boys. But also, we've got to be very careful to not confuse correlation with causation. The studies, the academic evidence around what do we actually know about the links between use of social media, for example, and, say, body image or mental health, are much less clear. In fact, any negative relationships between social media use and girls well-being are if anything very small if you ask girls themselves they have a far more mature view on tech than we probably give them credit for they don't think that everything they see online is is true but also they they see the upside they choose to have fun with it and it's a vital place for them to become informed about the causes they care about. And for lots of them, it's where they do most of their campaigning.
0: You mentioned campaigning because today's girls are more involved in it?
3: It's very hard to find girls today who don't in some way identify as as being an activist. When I asked girls about their role models, lots mentioned Greta Thunberg, the climate campaigner, and Malala Yousafzai, the education campaigner. In fact, one girl I spoke to had even seen Greta live.
1: When she came to Manhattan in September, Mm. when we had a really big march, um,
3: I saw her speak. Oh, cool. What was that like? Uh, It was nice. It was
1: really inspirational, and it was cool to have um, someone who's around my age, Mm. like They're
0: passionate and activated. And so, given all of the the research that you've done, all of these conversations that you've had, are are you left optimistic about girls and, and their future?
3: I am definitely left with an optimistic feeling. And I guess, particularly in a year like the one we've just had, speaking with this generation of girls and those who work closely with them has mostly been a very uplifting experience. Yes, there are challenges particularly, I would say, within the rich world, the pressure that we put on them. There's a danger in all our enthusiasm that we make saving the world another thing on girls' to-do list. But if you ask girls themselves, especially in group settings, they're charmingly, inspiringly optimistic about not just their enthusiasm to change the world, but also their ability to do so collectively. So if they feel that they're up for it, then we should probably feel optimistic as well.
0: Sasha, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Snake bites kill around 140,000 people a year and debilitate around 400,000 more. More than half of those deaths are caused by members of the viper family, which includes rattlesnakes and deadly serpents on several continents. For each species, there's a specific antidote. But a new drug combination offers hope for a more general life-saving approach.
2: So a key problem with snake bites is not creating the anti-venoms that are used to treat them. That's relatively straightforward.
0: Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist.
2: The real problem that we have is getting anti that are appropriate to snake bite victims. Because when people get bit, they get rushed to a clinic or a hospital. They hopefully make it there in time before the venom overwhelms them. And then, of course, the hospital has to figure out, well, what snake bit you? And if they give the wrong one, uh, the consequences can be quite serious, even life-threatening.
0: Is there no scope for a kind of universal anti venom?
2: No, not really. People have been taking the venom of a snake, injecting it into a horse or other large animal, and then collecting the serum out of the animal, and then using that as a drug, as a, like an antidote to treat people and help their immune systems to find the venom and destroy it. So you still have to use the specific venom, inject it into an animal, and then draw out the serum to create the antivenom. But some scientists led by Nicholas Casewell at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in Britain have been looking at the possibility of an alternative approach that uses small molecular drugs to try to mop up the bits of venoms that are particularly problematic. And as it turns out, a lot of venoms have very similar nasty bits in them. So you can create, he thinks, something that's universal.
0: So creating new drugs that would do that job then?
2: Not exactly. He's, creating can be done, but it's extraordinarily expensive. The far cheaper and easier option is to look for drugs that are already on the market that do what Dr. Casewell wants them to do. So Dr. Casewell knew that in viper venom, these snakes were all employing some very similar nasty toxins in them. And there were two enzyme groups that he was looking at, uh, zinc-ion methylproteinases and phospholipase A2. We see a lot of drugs are geared towards dealing with these kinds of toxins. Dr. Casewell started looking at a cancer drug that looked like it was good at getting control of zinc ions circulating in the blood. He also able to identify another drug that did a similar thing that was traditionally used in heavy metal poisoning. And finally, he looked at a drug that had been used to treat inflammatory diseases, which looked like it was a potent inhibitor of phospholipase A2. So he put these drugs together and trialed them against the venoms of different vipers and found remarkably that they worked
0: they worked in the sense that they saved someone's life
2: well we haven't actually been able to see this done in people yet but researchers injected mice with the venoms of a range of vipers and some of the mice were injected with an antidote and those receiving the single drug when it had a specific combination did not die within the six-hour experiment suggesting that this antidote really works and if it does with people, then that is really saying something because this drug does not need to be refrigerated like all of the antivenoms that are currently being created. It can also be taken orally. You can just have it available in an emergency medical kit for people doing treks in the wilds. And if they get bit, bam, they can have the pill straight away.
0: So given all that, does, does this mean that the problem of treating snake bites is, is now more or less solved?
2: Unfortunately not. So that's vipers solved. And vipers are one of the key groups that causes a lot of trouble. But the other family, elapidae, which includes such baddies as the king cobra and the black mamba, which are responsible for a lot of deaths, they do not have a universal antidote produced yet. But just because they don't have one yet doesn't mean that repurposing drugs to reduce their fatalities isn't on the cards. In fact, it's exactly what Dr. Casewell is planning on doing next.
0: Matt, thanks very much for joining us.